Gravel cycling is hot, 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 and we here at Velo News have put gravel racing on the cover of the upcoming uh, March-April issue of the print magazine. In fact, the entire magazine is dedicated to gravel and off-road racing. On the cover, we have Colin Strickland, uh, the winner of Dirty Kanza in 2019. We also have a great feature on the growth of grassroots race. Uh, grassroots races that are like a level below Dirty Kanza. We sent a reporter out to the Spirit World 100, Betsy Welch. You've heard her talk about that race on this podcast. We have her big feature on how the Spirit World 100 and other grassroots races are helping um, spread the creativity of gravel to different corners of the country. We also have this great feature. I wrote it. It should be great. On the four American female mountain bikers who are gunning for the Tokyo Olympics and how they banded together this past season to chase UCI points towards the push for three Olympic spots at Tokyo. It's a really interesting story about these gals who have been used to competing against each other, um, working together with USA Cycling to globetrot and chase these points to try and get as many uh, spots as possible for Tokyo. And finally, we have a great personal essay by Ashton Lambie about going on a bikepacking trip after he learned he was not going to qualify for the Olympics. Um, Ashton wrote a great personal journey, personal journal throughout this trip, um, talking about his disappointment of not making the games, of what it was like to ride his bike across the UK. Um, great stuff in there. So again, it is the March-April issue of Velonews Magazine. It's the gravel issue. It has Colin Strickland on the cover. Get yours at newsstands now. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you from a very snowy and cold day in Boulder, Colorado. It was 75 degrees uh, about 24 hours ago. Then it got a little windy and then the snow started falling and uh, hoodie, it's one of those days when you look out your back window and you see the lawn furniture and it has like a foot of snow on it. And, um, you know, people like me, we take photos of the lawn furniture, send it to loved ones around the globe and say, oh, my gosh, look at how snowy and cold it is. Oh. And no one cares. Nobody cares. You certainly don't care because you are still in Australia where it is warm out. Andrew Hood, set the scene for us. Where are you today? That's right, Fred. I, I took a kind of took advantage of this long, long flight down here to Australia to stay on a few extra days. My my brother-in-law is living in Sydney, so we're down here for a few extra days before flying home on the weekend. And uh, you know, the great thing about being in Australia is, you know, the the uh, the old school rock and roll channels, the nostalgic channels here in Australia. You know, it's full of like NXS, <laughs> Midnight Oil, the Hoodoo Gurus, all these great uh, old Aussie rock bands. So I've been rocking out on these uh, on these great uh, radio stations the last couple of weeks down here down under and uh, getting my Aussie groove on. Pretty cool. Do they have their own uh, ACDC station where it's just uh, you know high pitched screaming vocals and shredding guitars all day long? I'd like that. Yeah, in fact, we were in Melbourne uh, last week before the Cadell Evans race, and they have an ACDC street down there covered with graffiti. Pretty cool. The Aussies love their old school rock and roll. Whole lot of Rosie. Love it. Uh, well, we have a good episode coming up today. Uh, we are going to talk all about uh, the racing that went on, including the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, which Andrew Hood, you were there for. Uh, we had racing going on in Argentina with the Tour de San Juan uh, in both instances. 
quick step, dominating, killing, just just kicking butt. I, it, you know, the season is only like a week and a half old. The uh, quick step already has six wins. We're also going to talk about a uh, interesting pro cyclist man returning to the pro peloton, Cam Worf, after after moonlighting as a uh, triathlete for a few years. Hoodie, you caught up with Cam Worf. We're going to talk all about that and hear from him why he's returning to ride with Team Ineos after spending the last few years in a speedo. Swimming, biking, and running, doing triathlon. Oh, so fun. But before that, Hoodie, we have to get to the news of the week. And it's uh, it's doping news. And look, doping is not a topic that we want to talk about every episode here. But it's cycling and doping investigations and doping news happens from time to time. And the latest one to come down the pike is a pretty spicy meatball. Um, earlier this week... The Danish newspaper Politiken, 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 if you're Danish, please write me. Let me know how to um, pronounce this. Published a report that the um, anti-doping group CADF had conducted an investigation earlier this year, or late, late last year, into Danish rider Jakob Fuglsang and Kazakh rider Alexei Lysenko, both of whom are on Astana. And according to this report that we assume was leaked by the CADF, um, these investigators basically found that uh, both these guys were working with Lord Voldemort himself, Dr. Michele Ferrari, back from the dead, a guy who we thought was, you know, gone from cycling for good. He's serving a lifetime ban. You cannot work with Michele Ferrari. Anyway, according to this report, which was leaked, um, these guys maybe were potentially working with Dr. Ferrari. It caused a firestorm. Uh, Astana put out comments saying, no, 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 this is all cooked up. This is made up. Um, uh, both Litsenko and Fuglsang put out their own statements saying, no, 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 this is wrong. You know, I'm bummed this made it into the media. I don't have anything to answer for. Um, and that's where we find ourselves. Today, Andrew Hood, a bizarre doping controversy where there are no positive tests. There is just a report that we have not seen that has been leaked to a news outlet that says Jakob Fuglsang and Alexei Lysenko were working with the uh, Dark Lord himself, Michele Ferrari. Um, when you first heard about this report and read through it, Andy, I mean, take me through your reactions and how you processed this story. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was certainly a bombshell at first glance. You look at the headlines, you read through it, and it sounds like, oh my gosh, Michele Ferrari is back active in the peloton. Then you kind of dig in a little bit deeper and try to get the backstory of what was going on here. Uh, it was interesting. The CADF, which is the UCI's independent arm that controls the anti-doping controls and also part of it is uh, investigations. So evidently, there were some rumors going around already last year that Ferrari was being seen around again. You know, just some rumors, those rumors that oftentimes led to some pretty heavy uh, stuff 10 10 years ago, five years ago even. Well, it sounds like maybe even last summer. So uh, the CADF, part of its charge, they take these uh, the whistleblower. They want to protect whistleblowers. They want to invest, get this information, not blow it off like it perhaps it used to be done, or or just put it on the shelf. So they got a gumshoe. They hired out a private consultant, uh, someone to kind of just follow around and, and see what they could find. Now, 
uh, as you parse through this kind of these excerpts, you know, this this 24 page dossier evidently was written up by this consultancy, this private investigators given to within the CADF last summer. The report was dated summer of 2019. And there's a lot of insinuations in there suggesting that there might have been some contact between Ferrari and uh, Fuglesong and Lutsenko was evidently at this meeting, supposedly in Nice, Monaco. Supposedly they had a Ferrari motor pacing, a rider, uh, Ferrari showing up at a race. Now, you know, do you believe that or not? Um, the That sounds like perhaps Ferrari's old calling card from when he was kind of blatantly working with riders and teams. But today, just, just how much attention he's under and how, you know, how, how venomous his name is really – uh, within the cycling world, and you know, if you do get caught working with, uh, or even associating with a guy like Ferrari who's been banned, that that rider can face up to a two-year ban, even just any association with Ferrari. So he's quite toxic. So a lot of this, a lot of these insinuations, you know, evidently, they, you know, there was a eyewitnesses to these things, but it's hard to parse if it was actually this private investigator seeing it directly himself or just hearing reports and putting it into this uh, dossier. So it sounds like from you know, reading between the lines that this dossier was created. They followed up on some investigation. The basic uh, conclusion was this warrants more, more investigation. This, this warrants being followed up on. So there's nothing really in here, no actionable offenses that have come out of this report. Just the insinuation that perhaps – these two are working together and it needs to be further investigated. In fact, this report was never passed on to the UCI, which ultimately would have the power to sanction or to investigate something at a, at a, at a legal level. So it sounds like that this report might have just just got kind of stayed within the CIDF. According to what we can tell, we're trying to get some more information out of the CIDF, is if did they – had they followed up on this, was there anything in there that determined was right or wrong, and have they actually followed up on this initial report? It sounds like, reading between the lines, that it just kind of maybe sat there, and someone wasn't happy about the fact that nothing else happened to this in a mud. That's how a lot of these leaks work, right? When something, you know, there's someone unhappy with some uh, bureaucratic inaction, they might leak this to kind of kick, kickstart the process. And then, as, as you were saying earlier, Fred, too, this whole comes out on top of this whole other layer of the CADF, which has been uh, running the anti-doping for uh, cycling since uh, more than nearly a decade, is being dumped for this new ITA, International Testing Agency, which will be operating under a larger umbrella group of the IOC and WADA. So there's a lot of different layers yeah. here. You know, a lot of different layers here we can peel back. Yeah, typical cycling. It is not straightforward. It is not easy to understand. It is opaque and bizarre and strange. So let's take these things one by one. You mentioned at first there are these, you know, the CADF hired a gumshoe to follow around the riders, it, apparently. And, you know, according to this report, the gumshoe may have seen them motor pacing with Ferrari, having meetings with him, um, you know, hanging out with him. Maybe Ferrari was at the Catalonia race. So well, this is – you, you have to say you don't know if that's actually what the gumshoe saw right. themselves – or they're just reflecting what someone might have told them. So right, right. It's pretty important to point that out. Yeah. So th that's very important to point that out because, look, in either one of these situations, this trip – to me, this trip's kind of the, the dummy test where it's like, you know, okay, if they are doing this, then they're real, real dummies because they're doing – you know, motor pacing, that is a – that's public. 
you know, why would you want to be publicly seen with this guy? You know, even like having a meeting with him, I, uh, apparently if you're doing it in a public place, you could be seen. Um, there were, I guess I arched an eyebrow when I saw that because I'm like, well, you know, look, like why would these cyclists be putting themselves in that situation where, um, you know, where, where they could be seen and potentially reported? Um, and again, we don't know if this was rumors that were passed along or if this was the gumshoe actually seeing it. Um, the second part of this, the fact that um, this is, like you said, it's it's being put out there by the CADF. This isn't something that the UCI is putting out. This was a report that was done internally that never got passed up to the UCI and it never caused any action. Leads me to believe that you know what they had was probably not enough to pursue either of these guys. Or if it was enough, for some reason, it wasn't going anywhere. This was a report that was stalled. Um, and then the final part of it, like you said, is the fact that the CADF was being threatened by the UCI, or it, it was fearing losing the UCI as its major customer. I mean, the CADF is this independent arm that does business with the UCI, and the UCI has put out these public statements basically saying, eh, we're not going to work with the CADF anymore. We're going to work with this other group. And then lo and behold, a couple weeks later, this um, – report gets leaked out that, hey, actually, the CADF is, you know, tailing guys and hiring gumshoes and chasing Alexei Litsenko around and chasing Fuglesang around. Um, there's just a lot of weirdness to parse from that. And, you know, there was part of me at first that thought, and this is, look, this is all highly speculative. A lot of this podcast is going to be speculation, opinion. Um, we've we've hit the facts of this case from where they are. I think everything after this is going to be, you know, there, there might be some some spin on the ball. I was thinking, well, maybe the CADF leaks this out to try and show the UCI and show people out there that, hey, they are actually doing their job. You know, they're hiring gumshoes and tailing cyclists and following up on leads. You know, why are you going to abandon us and go with some other body? Look, look at the great work we're doing. But then you kind of look at the report and you're like, well, this thing is pretty flimsy. You know, there's not, <laughs> there's not a lot of meat on the bone. So maybe this actually isn't making the CADF looking very good. Um, then the other thing that stood out to me, though, was the riders themselves. Um, and that is where, you know, look, it's cycling. We've been through decades and decades of suspicion and doping and looking at people's results and analyzing them and hoping they're not doping. And, you know, when you look at Lysenko and Fuglesang, I mean, it's impossible not to realize that both these guys had amazing 2019 campaigns. I mean, they were both extremely successful. Fuglesang was one of the best cyclists in the world. I think he ended up uh, ranked like third or fourth in the pro cycling stats rankings. He won a monument. Litsenko had a bunch of different wins too. And so when I looked at this report at its face value, there was part of me that just raised a lot of eyebrows about it and was like, eh, this is kind of flimsy. This is kind of clunky. You know, this is like highly speculative. But then when you look at it through the lens of the riders that are involved in it, that's when you, and the fact that it's Astana and there's Vinokurov who worked with, Ferrari back in the day. That's the point at which, uh, you know, the thing starts to hold a little bit more water. Yeah, that's 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 what's the troubling bit about this is just the historical association between uh, Mr. Vinukarov, who admitted that he had worked with Ferrari, but of course pulled the old uh, the old pulled the old card. Oh, it wasn't for doping; it was just for training. You know, that was his excuse back in the day when he was working with uh, Ferrari. And, of course, Ferrari, one of the most notorious names in cycling. He was a key player in the Lance Armstrong case, uh, in the Padua case. And he had been around since the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now maybe even the 2020s. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. 
so but then when you have to look at it through the performances yeah i mean that's what's troubling I mean, do you do you look at it through the lens of that okay if fugusong's this you know is the is the guy that uh, beat Fuglesong in these races? You know, are these guys all working with these doctors? I mean, some of the reactions coming out from some other people around Fuglesong and around the team and people that know these guys are saying that they just don't believe that they would be blatantly working with Ferrari again. You know, I mean, it's 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 hard to parse this one, and I think that's why um, you know these reports. You know, something like this, that it does reflect that they are following up on these whistleblower suggestions, right? But if the rumor's going around that Ferrari is indeed active again in the Peloton and is perhaps working with teams, you know, it's a very good thing that the CADF is investigating it, that they have, you know, the, the, the financial wherewithal to actually spend money and to, and to you know, take cost a lot of money to perhaps sit and people out to investigate, to interview people, perhaps even to tell people. That, that's, a, that's something that's good. I mean, the whole idea is that you use this intelligence to follow up with doping controls that's kind of like the biological passport is another kind of weapon you you get you look at for suspicious uh tendencies in their in their profile then you start target testing and then you pop them for for uh performance enhancing and drugs because that's really still the only thing that actually stands up in uh, at least sporting court is a hard positive um you know when you get into things like he said she said that's where you need to get into the whole, you know, legal realm beyond the sporting governance. You know, Lance Armstrong ultimately fell because all the uh, all the witnesses were under the threat of federal perjury charges. That's why they finally all told their story, and it was because they were facing legal ramifications outside the realm of sporting governance. So, yeah, it's hard to parse it, man. It's a lot of different layers. It, it, in some ways, it's a it's an ominous sign for cycling that you never let down your guard. I mean, we just heard the news from La Partendi even the week before saying they went to, I think it was Costa Rica, they did 12 out of kind of competition controls and all 12 are positive. So, you know, it's like cycling still has some issues that it's uh, grappling with. Let's put it that way. Yeah, look, I was really bummed when I saw Fuglesong's name on the list. He's a rider I've followed for a long time. I actually got to know him back in 2000, it would have been 2007, 2008. I was at the Cape Epic. And he was there as an under-23 rider riding with Rule Paulison. And, you know, he was just a really nice kid. He, was, he wasn't any, you know, that big of a deal at the time and very approachable. And I hung out with him on a number of afternoons and got to know him. And he then won the U23 Mountain Bike World Championships later that year. I think he did a time trial at the Tour of Denmark and won. And it was like, oh, wow, look at this guy. He is very strong. Um, and, and switch to the road soon thereafter. But, you know, even at that age, he's 21, 20, you know, 20 or 21, like he was on the trajectory towards great things. He's a specimen. I mean, he's a, a phenomenally uh, gifted cyclist who was on the trajectory toward the Tour de France. And so you know, I followed his career year in, year out. And when I saw him do very well last year, yes, he had great performances, but I guess it didn't seem like anything – out of the ordinary for a rider who was on that trajectory of a guy who has done grand tours, diesel engine, maybe doesn't have the high-end climbing of some of the best, best uh, Tour de France riders, but is just a couple watts behind. You know, he's won the Dauphiné before. And it just seemed like maybe last year was this year in which he put everything together. He's a KG veteran. He knows the ebb and flow of the races. He knows where to conserve energy and just can like pop right at the right time and, and win. And, and look, that still may be the case. But, you know, when when something like this happens, it's just very easy 
to look at those results and say, oh, well, obviously it's because, you know, he was working with uh, Ferrari. Uh, with Lutsenko, I mean, that's a little different. He has, he he got dramatically better from 18 to 19. Um, and he, look, people are going to have their biases. He's Kazakh. He is, um, you know, from a country that we've had multiple riders have doping suspensions from. And so I think that creates an, a natural bias with some fans um, to suspect him. And, um, you know, that this report is probably going to play into the thoughts and assumptions that people already had. I will say in some of my casual conversations with American cyclists last year, especially at the midpoint of the year, there were some eyebrow raises and there were some, oh my gosh, the Peloton is fast this year. And wow, look at some of these races. And you know, I'm trying to remember. I feel like maybe there was one or two people who kind of were like, wow, Astana's really fit this year. Um, so that has always been a bit of my barometer, you know, checking in with some of these pro riders who you have good relationships with that are trustworthy about, you know, their take on where the Peloton is. Because, you know, what we don't want is a return to the bad old days where the assumption is just like in order to be in the game, you have to be doped, you know, the assumption that everyone is on it. And and in my conversations with people in the sport, I don't have that sense. You know, I still have the sense that it is a minority. Um, but I think this story is just another, another example of why, you know, doping isn't something that you cure. It's something you always kind of have to be vigilant of. And, you know, it's, it's all the potential for it is always going to be there. Um, and there have to be these systems and checks in place to, to to follow up on things and to investigate things when, you know, riders and other people suspect that untoward behavior is going on. Yeah, I think I think that's that's it's uh, one thing that has changed, I think, is that that uh, the culture within the Peloton, you want to believe has changed, because when you do talk to people, uh, I think there is the sense that that uh, there is kind of a sense that. There is a core group of the Peloton that is trying to do the right thing, and that when people go extraordinarily well, it's it's let it be known within the powers that be to watch somebody. You get that sense. There is like some self policing going on inside the Peloton these days that wasn't necessarily the case before. Before, you know, it was the whole merta, and, and it was like the whole game was juiced. So. But, you know, it's very, you know, some of these things that are happening are troubling because, you know, we're hearing the same, you know, same kind of whispers in the sites like, man, a Peloton is fast. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why that might be. You know, the assumption is it's like, well, everyone's just getting back. You know, they're gaming the system is what the assumption is these days, that people think that there's a way around the biological passport. We talked about that being, you know, it's not really effective as a sanctioning tool. Now it's kind of being used as more as a part of the uh, quiver of tools they can use to get people on the more traditional tests. But there's the, the sense that you know it's not it's not the open faucet like it was in the 90s, but there's still some drip, drip, drip that's going to help performances. And that's where it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to control that. And I think when you uh, get at this elite level, the pressure to win is always going to be there, and I think the pressure to cheat is always going to be there. Uh, but I think. There's also a lot of pressure not to do these things because, man, if you get caught with Ferrari, that's just so toxic. There's just no way that, that uh, you know, as an individual, that would be the end of your career. And perhaps even as a team, it would be the end of that team. But, you know, we are talking about an exceptional situation here with Vinukarov. It doesn't have the traditional kind of sponsorship model. He's backed by the government. You know, who knows what's going on there? And we don't want to cast any 
you know, to, to cast something negative on the entire organization there. There's some good people working there, good writers there. Um, and everyone hopes that everyone's kind of turned the page. But, you know, it, it's it's certainly very troubling to see, especially this name associated to be active again in the Peloton. And that's that's the big red flag for me out of this whole thing is that, you know, if, if Ferrari is still out there trying to do stuff along the periphery and you know – you know that he's he's going to be doing things in a, you know no digital trail no digital footprints and you know motor pacing and meeting with people in open air cafes you know that's not going to happen because they're too smart for that but there'll be you know there's ways of working where you're going to leave absolute no digital footprints no emails no sms's no whatsapps so they're going to be working at some higher level of passing intelligence and passing information and working through third parties Jeez, Hoodie, sounds like you have some uh, experience with doing that stuff. I mean, gee, what, what's going on? Uh, are you moonlighting and in, like international espionage when you're not <laughs> filing hot takes for Velo News? Holy cow. Yeah, I've just read too many U.S. auto reports over the years, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, so l- l- look, we've gone through this. Let's, let's talk people off the ledge, though. Reasons to still love pro cycling. Yes, there's this doping controversy. Yes, there's fears that Dr. Ferrari might be back. Oh, we love Jakob Fuglsang. He has such a funny name. It means birdsong. We hope he's not, you know, using the juice. Um, I think there's still plenty of reasons to, like, stay engaged, be happy with cycling. We got to wait to see how this, thing whole sh- this whole thing shakes out. Um, Races are starting up. There's great racing. We just saw phenomenal racing over the weekend at the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. We saw awesome racing going on in Argentina, and it was competitive, and it was tactical, and it wasn't just like the old days where some guy puts it in a bigger gear than everyone else has and just rides away and kills everybody. Um, It was, I thought, really spectacular racing. So Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race this race that's wanting to be a classic, really hard-punishing one-day road race. Uh, Hoodie, you were there. What stands out to you about the finale? We saw Quickstep win ahead of uh, Team Ineos, but it really seemed like it was a dynamic and tactical race. Yeah, it's an interesting course there. The the race director, Scott Sutherland, is trying to kind of billing it as this, the first classic of the season. And it's kind of getting, you know, it's now it's in its sixth, sixth edition, getting some momentum. Got some big teams coming down with some big hitters. Uh, we had <clears throat> Viviani, Caleb Ewan, Mitchelton Scott, and, of course, uh, Quick Step. You know, they swapped out Viviani for Sam Bennett. So this whole kind of Aussie summer has been pretty important for Quick Step to kind of fine-tune that their new sprint train, slotting in Sam Bennett to take it over for the Viviani spot. And so what happened on Sunday at the Kid Evans race is always this kind of yo-yo. There's a pretty decisive climb, little steep wall that was featured in the 2010 World Championship course in Geelong. And that's always the make or break point in this race. They do four circuits over it. And, uh, of course, race splits up. It's about uh, six Ks back to the finish from there, seven Ks. So the question is, you know, it's always that yo-yo effect of, you know, does it come back? Do the sprinters get in there? And so it was a pretty exciting race. On Sunday, you had kind of a 15-man group. You know, Mads Peterson was in there, world champion. You know, he's actually looking to get some good form going into the Spring Classics. Caleb Ewan and uh, Viviani actually were in that group, but Sam Bennett wasn't. Quick step snuck in. Uh, Dries Devin is an old KG Belgian veteran. Uh, that just kind of reflects – Quick Step's philosophy of racing. You know, they have a card for every scenario in these one-day races. So that was the plan. They have Sam Bennett miss the group, but he's holding back. Yeah, Drevin is in there. He's not doesn't have to do any work. He's just marking the wheels. Group split up again under more attacks from Mitchelton Scott, reduced to about a six-rider group. 
And then Mr. Sivikov, future Tour de France winner, Bing, you heard it here first, <laughs> uh, attacks off the front, tries a time trial at home. Uh, you had Daryl Empey there as the fastest man in that chase group. No one wanted to help tow him back. So Dries, KG Belgian veteran, bridges across to Sivikov and pops him in the sprint. Boom. Quick step wins again. So pretty exciting race. Uh, good vibe down in Geelong. Women's race was very exciting as well. Unfortunately, the women's race marred by some heavy rain. There was a big pile up there uh, in the crash at the end of the race. And we had a young German rider from Sunweb won, won in, a, in a pretty good play by the Sunweb team. Great weekend of racing. Great event. There's a new new one-day race at Torquay. Um, so plenty to keep the pros interested and happy for an extra week in, in Australia. I was excited to see a guy like Drew Devin is win because he's a guy who doesn't get to win a whole lot. He is usually the big guy pulling the group around. He's like second or third um, before you know either the sprinter goes or they launch their GC guy. I mean, he's a he's a workhorse, and so to see him get the chance to be up there with uh, Sivakov was pretty impressive to see. Um, Looked like Team Team Ineos wanted that race. I mean, they were doing a lot early. They had riders on the front. They were trying to split the field. Um, and one of the guys they had on the front was your man Cam Wirth. He was uh, at the race. He was on the front. He was drilling it hard. And you know, talk to me about this guy. You know, he made some he made some headlines on our site because he has decided to return to World Tour racing after several seasons spent. Uh, being an Ironman triathlete. He was with Ulrika Mitchelson-Scott for a number of years, and he was really good at Ironman. He didn't quite have it on the run. He'd always, I think he was top 10 once or twice, um, but it sounds like he's going to try to race in the World Tour and still be good for Ironman. Uh, Hoodie, what did you get from talking to this triathlete turned World, world Tour cyclist turned triathlete turned back to being a World Tour cyclist? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, Cam Worth. I mean, he's he's a legend here down here in Australia. Uh, he, he he was first a rower. He was an Olympic rower. I think he made the uh, Olympic finals one year and the two men skull. You know, to to be a rower, that that's a pain threshold that that cyclists don't even know because it's just unrelenting for the entire course of the event. Uh, transferred into road cycling. You're right. He raced a few years with uh, Leaky Gas, uh, the Cannondale franchise. Gave it up uh, 2014, went into uh, triathlon, and the plan here is for him to to stay focused on triathlon. This is not a uh, an effort for him to get back and get skinny and try to make the Ineos Tour de France team. That's not what this is all about. This is about him uh, building on last year he was fifth at Kona, fifth at the Ironman World Championships. So it's all about him kind of just building out his uh cycling base because that's that's in an ironman that's really where you make up the most winning differences you can only go so fast in the swim unless you're bad of course that's where you lose time uh or in the run so his strength in the ironman is cycling so and there's a lot of cross-pollination between worth and Enios already dating back several years. He's good training buddies. He trains all the time with uh, Garrett Thomas. They were just together in L.A. before he made the flight back over for this race. His coach is Tim Carrison, who is the coach for Enios. He's also – Carrison comes from a swimming and rowing background. So he's been working with Tim Carrison for many years already. And they already actually have been talking about him coming back to the team to kind of get in some more – uh, road race miles within the peloton for him to get better in Ironman. So he's not going to be racing 
at uh, the Tour de France. He won't be racing the Dauphiné. You know, he's going to be a utility man that might race, you know, racing with kind of some second-level races that Enios needs an extra warm body that he can get in there. And basically he was saying that the pace of racing is going to help him in his Ironman because you can't replicate that by training. So, and he said he, he, he was in the race on Sunday. He was just dead by, you know, by at the end of that race because right from the gun, we were talking to Brett Lancaster before the start. Said, oh, yeah, we're going to make him work. So they put him on the front of the bunch in his first race back in five years and had him pulling the crosswinds. <laughs> well, I mean, that will be the good steady state training that he needs for Ironman is basically, uh, yeah, hey, get on the front and tap out a real hard tempo for the next four or five hours because, you know, that when I've talked to guys who have done cycling back to Ironman, the big difference is um, when you're, you know, when you're a cyclist, you are building an engine that can rev and recover and rev and recover and rev and recover. And for Ironman, it's about maintaining this really high wattage steady state for, you know, four or five hours. And so um, that's why I was curious that he was coming back. I was like, wow, is that really the effort that he's going to need for Iron Man? But it sounds like if they're just going to make him, if he knows that he's going to be Mr. Domestique and just uh, sitting on the front for the entire pack, then uh, then that's going to do it well for him. So if you find yourself in a race with Mr. Cam Wirth, I think you're going to get a free ride for the next uh, five hours. I just hope you're fit enough to hold that guy's wheel because, like he said, he is a bona fide um, he's a bona fide hoss. Um, well, Andy Hood, we have an interview with Cam Wirth that you did at the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. We're going to throw to that. And um, I think we're going to, that's going to do it for us this week. We're going to hope that there's no more doping stories to have to bite into next week. And it's going to be all about the racing because we do have good racing going on. We have, oh, uh, Saudi Arabia tour is going on, Valencia, uh, Jayco Harold Sun Tua, and then we're almost to the UAE tour. I mean, bike racing has started, Hoodie. I'm looking at my calendar. There's so many dang bike races to talk about. Indeed. The the racing calendar kicks in, and it just goes full gas all the way to October. There's no more easing into anything. Everyone I talk to at these races down here in Australia, they said everyone's going full gas. It's not uh, – there's no preparation races anymore. There's no easy races anymore. And, uh, you know, the calendar's chock full. There's not, not many holes in the calendar these days. Well, Andy, you are trained and tapered and ready to race yourself. Race into the season of race coverage. Uh, thanks for tuning into the Velo News podcast. Let's hear from your man, Cam Worth. Cameron Worth, big change, man. Tell us the story of how this came about. You were uh, probably training, preparing for a triathlon, then boom, suddenly you're back in the race. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to sum it up. I was actually in LA, uh, La La Land. It's a real bit of a Hollywood story, isn't it? You, um, I was training there with Geron Thomas, and uh, we've done that the last few years. And um, yeah, our coach, Tim Kerrison, turned up last week, Wednesday, and um, just mentioned that, uh, you know, Kiri was having to think about, you know, his future and whether he wanted to keep racing. and. If he did decide to stop, would I be prepared to step up and uh, take a few snaps for the team and um, do and uh, fill in a bit? And uh, said, yeah, absolutely. And um, then Kiri made his mind up, and uh, and and Dave Brailsford was really determined to act really decisively and quickly and, and get it all done. And uh, you know, the, this race was Rowan went back to Europe early, and 
they had a vacant spot and we felt it was best to come back and get back into it. No time like the present. So totally unexpected. I mean, this was not a part of your radar, on your radar at all. You were preparing for your triathlon full time. Yeah, well, I mean, to say it wasn't on my radar would not be true. I mean, we've talked about me coming back to racing over the past few years, but just finding the right time, you know, for it to work for my preparation for Kona and obviously a role within the team. And, uh, and this sort of, you know, it came up. Um, and I guess at a time when, yeah, I'm, I've progressed pretty well in the sport. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it, it, we feel like we can manage it and it, it can also help me, you know, do even better in Kona, you know, try and improve on my fifth place from, uh, from last year. And, and that's, um, yeah, it was a perfect, seemed like a really good fit for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination, so to speak, between, you know, your coach, Karasen, you're training with uh, G, mm-hmm. Enios is kind yep. of expanding its brand uh, to other sports, so mm-hmm. it's a perfect fit, really. I Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, it, to me, it seems that way, and uh, it's been nice, I mean, great the last few years. No one's really understood how much involvement they've had. In fact, they've, they have actually, you know, Carson Jefferson, who organises all the, the contracts for the team, is basically my manager and organises all my contracts with the team sponsors, and, of course, they have me at the camps and things so they offer me a fair bit of support that way without necessarily wearing the you know the well, team sky and then Ineos colors so um, yeah the team I've basically they've they've always called me you know the extra extra rider you know over the last few years so yeah it's uh, it's just as I said to someone this morning uh, you know it's, a, it's just a different start line really uh, I feel like I'm a part of the group you know I felt like that for the last few years and uh, and and I'm really excited to actually you know get out and and be amongst them, you know, in a race again. When was your last World Tour race? I mean, 2014, the end of 2014. Yeah, back when they had Tour of Beijing. It's funny, they don't even have that race anymore. And this race didn't exist when I raced before. So, uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Any trepidation about being in the peloton again? It's a lot different than riding training or, you know, racing an Ironman. Yeah, it is. But um, no, I don't. I mean, it's been so long since I raced. I can't even remember what it was like. So whatever it'll be will be the new norm for me you know i mean yeah of course it'll be a bit different you know like anything is when you do it for the first time but uh you know i yeah i I can't wait to be honest and you know when it's team ineos that asks you to come back you know the best team in the world the team that you know basically every rider wants to be on um they obviously have a bit of confidence in you so that gives me a fair bit of confidence in myself that uh i can do what i need you know what's what's asked of me and um and, and play the role that they've, uh, they want me to do. So, um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. What's the race schedule going to be like? Is this it's a full-time road commitment or is it balancing between triathlon and this? Oh, the, the focus is Kona, like 100% the focus is Kona. So uh, for now, I'll do this race and then we'll sit down and talk about it. I mean, uh, we didn't even know I was doing this until five days ago. So um, certainly, you know, senior management wouldn't have even had time to think about that. We need to see what I'm like back in the bunch. You know, we need to see, <laughs> I need to see what I'm like back in the bunch. Uh, and, uh, and we can go from there. But um, provided I've got, you know, we've sort of feel like three months, three to four months to focus on Kona is, uh, is, is, is a really good sort of period for me for, for concentration and also the load required. Um, you know, what I do between now and then, yeah, I'm open. I'm excited. So uh, racing on the, on the road is actually going to help you in Kona, you think, in the long term? I believe it should. I mean, the, the bike is obviously the central part of the race. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's in the middle, but it is the, the biggest part. It has the most influence, really, on the outcome generally. So, you know, if I, can, if I can find a way to keep progressing that part of the sport whilst improving the other two, you know, in, in theory, it's going to make me a much more, um, much bigger threat in Kona. And, uh, 
and racing, you know, you, you just can't get the power oscillations and the, you know, the adaptations, you know, muscularly, you know, from training. It just doesn't doesn't happen. You need you need to do some racing for that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's to us, it feels like the perfect time to maybe go back and touch up on that and um, see if we can, you know, keep progressing the other two a little bit because I'm pretty close with them. Yeah. And um, yeah, and hopefully that'll be the difference. So there's no worry that's going to impact your swim or the run by jumping into this program and just doing this oh it, I, mm. I, it won't if i crash it might yeah <laughs> if i have a if i have a spill and i uh, got a heap of road rash or break a bone or something yeah of course it's going to impact that but um yeah i, I mean physically it's it's just a hard day at the office i've done plenty of them uh so that doesn't phase me at all it, ironman triathlon is a very psychological you know sport you know is that you it's very easy to um convince yourself you're tired you know after doing any of the three disciplines uh it's a matter of having your brain and saying look uh, I've still got to go and do something else and and that's uh that's something I relish and and love and I'm sure racing you know will um probably help take me to the next level. So you've gone from rowing to cycling, professional cycling, triathlon, now back to professional cycling. Yeah. Man of many hats. (laughs) Yeah yeah so the next step is back to rowing so um you know who knows next Olympics we'll see. Yeah yeah Yeah. good stuff. (laughs) Thanks for the time man. Pleasure. Uh,